Well, good morning, everyone. It's fantastic to see all of your faces here today, and then everyone joining us by Zoom as well. Welcome. It's the first time for my family and I to be back here at the chapel for over a year now, and it is an absolute privilege, I have to say. So um, I want to start off by asking a somewhat of a personal question, and I don't expect anyone to answer out loud, but how much debt do you have? I think it's pretty safe to say that each one of us here today probably has incurred at least some type of monetary debt at some point in your life. Maybe it's a car payment. Maybe you are working on paying off a student loan right now. According to the Federal Reserve in 2020, the average amount of student loan debt was approximately $37,500. Maybe you have a house payment and you're working on your, your, your mortgage, paying off your mortgage. Whatever debt it is that you might have, I think we all can agree that it's not fun or easy to have this large amount of money that's coming out of our, our paycheck or our income each month. And it's, it can be a constant and heavy burden that we have on our shoulders until that day that we finally make that final payment. Now, maybe there are some of you here, or maybe there are some of you on Zoom who are thinking to yourself, nope, not me. I don't have any debt. And I'm going to stand here and tell you uh, that you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. You see, the Bible tells us that each and every one of us has a debt. A debt that we owe because each and every one of us has sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us has sinned at some point in our lives. And it doesn't matter how big or how small that sin may have been, God makes it very clear in his word to us He will not tolerate sin in any way, shape, or form. Just as he made it clear from the beginning, when he removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, when they committed their sin against God. And God has a very high standard of holiness and perfection. 
And every single person that's ever walked on this earth has failed to meet that standard. And God also makes it very clear in his word what the penalty or the debt for our sin is. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I'd like to focus on that word, wages. What, what is a wage? A wage is something that we earn. For instance, my job, I'm a police officer. I go to work every day. I work nine and a half hours. And then at the end of the month, I receive a paycheck for the work that I've done. So I work, and then the wages that I earn is the paycheck, is the money that I receive for that work that I've performed. And here, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. We all have sinned, and what we've earned as a result of our sin is death. But it's not death in the physical sense of our bodies no longer having the capacity to maintain life. It's a second death. We all, we all will die one day. We all have been born and we all will die one day unless the Lord comes back first before we die. But we all will die physically. And there is a second death that the Lord is talking about here. And this second death is described here in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was a, no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death is the penalty or the judgment that you pay as a result of refusing to receive Christ as your substitute. It is eternal separation from the holy presence of God. Now, 
let's for a second imagine that Romans 6.23 ended there. For the wages of sin is death. That's it. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. Eternal suffering in hell. And eternal separation from the one who created us. Imagine how hopeless we would be knowing that all we have is the life that we're currently living right now. Full of sadness, full of pain, full of suffering, and full of death. Imagine living your life and seeing everyone around you die. And knowing that your turn is coming. And knowing that when you die, your sadness and your pain and your suffering was nothing compared to what it is that you are about to experience for eternity. But, and I have a big but, on my page here. Thank God that Romans 6.23 does not end there. We don't have to live our lives knowing that the future that we will have in eternity will be full of suffering because the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, you may be thinking, why? Why would God do that? Why would God just give us a free gift of eternal life when all of us have sinned, when all of us have turned our backs on God and sinned against Him? Well, the answer to that can be found in what could arguably be considered the most widely known verse in the entire Bible, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved me. He loved you, and he loved everyone else on this earth so much that he sent his only son, who was with him in heaven, to die on a cross so that me and so that you and so that everyone else who have fallen short of God's standard of perfection would be forgiven. God sacrificed his only son for us so that my sins and so that your sins and everyone else's sins would be completely washed away as if they never even existed. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice 
because he met God's standard of perfection. And he paid the wages of our sin, which is death, when he died on Calvary's cross. Jesus took my place and died as my substitute, and he took your place and he died as your substitute. But how do we know that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God who was sent to die for our sins? What evidence do we have to show that Jesus was who he said he was? There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that were written hundreds and even thousands of years prior to Jesus' death on the cross. Let's go ahead and look over a few of them and see that they describe these precise details of the Messiah that God had promised to send. The first one will be in Psalm 22:16, and it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So here we see a prophecy that was written by David nearly a thousand years before Jesus' death. And David's describing the details of the coming Messiah, and he indicates that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Next, we'll see from Isaiah, who prophesied about Jesus' burial over 700 years prior to Jesus' death. And that's in Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And we see this prophecy was fulfilled when Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, who was also a follower of Christ, asked Pilate to take control of Jesus' body after he died so that he might bury him. And Pilate granted the request of Joseph, and Joseph placed Jesus' body in a tomb that he had made previously for himself. And then... Jesus himself indicated exactly how long it would be that he would be buried for after his death. Mark 9.31 says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. And then finally, and most importantly, the resurrection of Christ was prophesied by David somewhere between 700 and 1,000 years before Christ's death, and that's found in Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. It says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope, 
For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Here, the word Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. And this is saying that God would not leave Jesus to remain buried in the grave. He would not allow his body to decay in the tomb. And we know that this prophecy of the resurrection was true because Jesus' body did not decay after he was killed and buried, but rather he was resurrected from the dead. So what's the importance of these prophecies? The importance is that it proves the authenticity of Christ. It shows us that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was. It shows us that he was the Son of God. It shows us that the Messiah that God had promised was Jesus. And God promised to send this Messiah to save the people from their sins. Now, I want you to imagine that you had a silver dollar, and if you took a permanent marker and you put your initials on the back of the silver dollar, and then you gave this silver dollar um, to a complete stranger. And then imagine that the entire surface of the state of Texas was covered with silver dollars. And then all of them were placed on the ground face up. And then once you've given this coin to the stranger that you've written your initials on, the stranger, you give them two days to go anywhere in the entire state of Texas and replace the coin that you have had put on your initials on and replace it with one of the coins that is on the surface of the entire state of Texas. And then, after two days have passed, and you haven't talked to this stranger at all, you've had absolutely no contact with him whatsoever, you now have the opportunity to go anywhere in the entire state of Texas and go pick one coin up off of the ground. You would be more likely to select the coin that you had put your initials on, and this stranger went out through everywhere in Texas. He had, he had the opportunity to go absolutely anywhere in Texas and switch one coin, and you would have more of a chance to pick your coin than for these prophecies to have been fulfilled. It would have been completely impossible to have predicted all of these prophecies and the precise details that are in them without the information having been provided to the prophets from God himself. But why are we here today? Why do we celebrate Easter? 
This week of Easter is celebrated around the world. All around the world and has been for centuries, but why? Why is Jesus' resurrection so important? Well, let's focus on what it would mean if Jesus hadn't overcome death. We know that Jesus was perfect. We know that he knew no sin. And that is why he had to be the one that would die in our place. And only Jesus met the standard of perfection that was set by God. But what if, what if it happened that, what if it was that, that was it, that was all that happened. He, he died, he died for our sins, but that was it. If that had been what had happened, then we would have absolutely no hope whatsoever of life after death. Our faith would be in vain because we would still owe the debt that we have as a result of our sin. But our faith is not in vain. We do have hope of life after death because Jesus did overcome death. He did defeat death. We see that through Christ's resurrection, our debt has been paid. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And here... We'll be looking at specifically verses 3 through 8. And here we see Paul explain to the Corinthian church not only that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead, but Paul also explains that the Corinthian church can confirm that Jesus did overcome death because there are witnesses who saw Jesus after he had been crucified and after he died. Let's see exactly what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, And last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is how we know that Jesus truly did rise from the dead on the third day after his death. 
Paul lists out a number of different people who saw Jesus over a period of 40 days after the tomb was found empty. First, Paul says that he was seen by Cephas, who is also known as Peter. Then he was seen by the 12 disciples. Then he was seen by over 500 people at one time. And Paul points out the importance of these 500 people who saw Jesus when he explains to the Corinthian church that a majority of these people who saw Jesus were still alive. And they're still alive when Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. This is important because the Corinthian church at the time was struggling with this belief in the resurrection of the dead. And here Paul is telling them, these in the Corinthian church, that if they didn't believe that Jesus could have possibly been risen from the dead... All they had to do was talk to these witnesses, these people, over 500 people who saw him, a majority of them who are still alive, and talk to them. They saw Jesus after he had been crucified and after he died. They saw him. They they knew that he had been risen from the dead. Then Paul says that Jesus was seen by James, although it isn't specifically clear which James it is that Paul is talking about. And then he was seen by all the other apostles that had been appointed by Jesus before his death. Now, I, as a CHP officer, can attest to the importance of of a witness and the testimony that a witness can provide. I'll give you an example. Although a rear-end collision is the most common type of collision that occurs on the road, it's not the only type of collision that happens, right? So it's not very important for me as a CHP officer to have that independent witness's testimony, the information that I can get from an independent witness, because 99% of the time when a rear-end collision happens, the person that runs into the back of the car in front of them is most likely going to be found to be at fault. Why? Because they were driving at a speed that wasn't safe. And whether it be traffic ahead of the car is slowing down and they're slowing down or whether it be a hazard that's in the road and the car in front of them has to slow down and and try to avoid this hazard or maybe even it could be they're coming up to a red light and they have to slow down or come to a stop for this red light so as a result of that person's unsafe speed They were unable to stop their vehicle in time, and as a result, they run into the back of the car in front of them. So when I come up to a scene and I see that there's damage to a vehicle that has uh, 
been involved in this collision and the damage is on the front of the vehicle and then the other vehicle has damage on the back of it, 99% of the time I can already tell who's, who's been at fault. Unless there's some type of other circumstance, which would be that 1% of the time that they're not found at fault. So it's not really important to have the statement provided by a witness in this, in this scenario, because I already know who's at fault. Now, on the other hand, the statement that's provided by an independent witness can be very important and very helpful when an accident happens and the damage to both of the vehicles is on the sides of the vehicles. And each one of the drivers that are involved are saying, he came into my lane and he hit me. One says that, the other one says that. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I didn't see what happened. I don't know who's lying. I don't know who's telling the truth. So in this situation, this is when the statement of a witness can be extremely helpful. It helps me to de determine which one of the people that was driving these vehicles was actually at fault. They can tell me which car moved over into the lane of the other, of the other car. Well, this same type of situation actually happened after Jesus' resurrection. The Roman soldiers who had been tasked with guarding Jesus' tomb had claimed that they had fallen asleep during the night and that Jesus' body had been stolen. Now keep in mind, back in those days, the consequence for a Roman soldier to have been found sleeping on the job was death. But other people were saying that Jesus had been risen from the dead. They were saying that they saw Jesus after he died. And this is the belief that the Corinthian church was struggling with at the time. That Jesus could not have possibly been risen from the dead. And Paul gives them a very simple solution to their problem of this disbelief. And he tells them that a majority of the over 500 people who saw Jesus after he died were still alive. And they could be questioned as a witness. Jesus overcame death. He defeated death. And that is how we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus' death paid that debt that we owed. God showed us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that satisfied his standard of perfection. 
when he raised him from the dead. And he showed us that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, and our Savior. And knowing that Jesus was God, we can rest assured that Jesus' death did, in fact, pay the full price for our sin. Jesus has declared us righteous in God's eyes and given us the ability to have a personal relationship with him. And all we have to do is trust him as our Lord and Savior. So if you don't know him today, and you are ready to take that step of trusting in him, I encourage you to take that step. Take it today. Because no one is promised tomorrow. And tomorrow may be too late. But if you do know him, and this applies to me as well, I challenge you to share this message with someone who may not know it. Maybe you have a close friend or a neighbor or even a close family member who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who hasn't put their trust and their faith in Him. And if you see an opportunity to share with them, don't hesitate. Because again, tomorrow may not come. But for us who know Christ, we are here to remember that up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, and we saints who are here today can say hallelujah, Christ arose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you loved us so much that you sent your Son, who was with you in heaven, to come and to die on the cross for our sins. He came to pay the debt that we had, that we owed. And he died on the cross and sacrificed himself. But not only that, he defeated death. He overcame death. And thank you, Lord, for giving us that evidence that we have that our sins have been paid for. Our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been washed away as if they never even existed. Thank you, Lord, for giving us that evidence that our faith is not in vain. That we have a hope of everlasting life after death. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.